What you are listening to was created with an artificial voice for the audiobook initiative on Sermon Audio. There may be mispronunciations or occasional repetitions. To report a mistake, please email us at info at sermonaudio.com and include the sermon ID or title of the message and the time at which the error occurs. We will do our best to get it corrected for future listeners. Christian Behavior Part 3 Duties of Children to Parents There lieth also a duty upon children to their parents, which they are bound both by the law of God and nature conscientiously to observe. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And again, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. There are these general things in which children should show forth that honor that is due to their parents from them. First, they should always count them better than themselves. I observe a vile spirit among some children, and that is they are apt to look over their parents and to have slighting and scornful thoughts of them. This is worse than heathenish. Such an one hath got just the heart of a dog or a beast that will bite those that begot them and her that brought them forth. Objection. But my father, etc., is now poor, and I am rich, and it will be a disparagement, or at least a hindrance to me, to show that respect to him as otherwise I might. Answer. I tell thee, thou arguest like an atheist and a beast, and standest in this full flat against the Son of God. Must a gift and a little of the glory of the butterfly make thee that thou shalt not do for and honor to thy father and mother? A wise son maketh a glad father, but a foolish man despiseth his mother. Though thy parents be never so low, and thou thyself never so high, yet he is thy father, and she thy mother, and they must be in thy eye in great esteem. The eye that mocketh at his father, and despiseth to obey his mother, the ravens of the valley shall pick it out, and the young eagles shall eat it. Second, thou oughtest to show thy honor to thy parents by a willingness to help them with such necessaries and accommodations which they need. If any have children or nephews, let them learn to show piety at home and to requite their parents, saith Paul, for that is good and acceptable before God. And this rule, Joseph observed to his poor father, though he himself was next the king in Egypt. But Mark... Let them requite their parents. There are three things for which, as long as thou livest, thou wilt be a debtor to thy parents. One, for thy being in this world. They are they from whom immediately under God thou didst receive it. Two, for their care to preserve thee when thou wast helpless and couldst neither care for nor regard thyself. Three, for the pains they have taken with thee to bring thee up. 
until thou hast children of thy own, thou wilt not be sensible of the pains, watchings, fears, sorrow, and affliction that they have gone under to bring thee up. And when thou knowest it, thou wilt not easily yield that thou hast recompensed them for thy favor to thee. How often have they sustained thee in thy hunger, clothed thy nakedness? What care have they taken that thou mightest have wherewith to live and do well when they were dead and gone? They possibly have spared it from their own belly and back for thee, and have also impoverished themselves that thou mightest live like a man. All these things ought duly, and like a man, to be considered by thee and care ought to be taken on thy part to requite them. The scripture saith so, reason saith so, and there be none but dogs and beasts that deny it. It is the duty of parents to lay up for their children, and the duty of children to requite their parents. Third, therefore, show by all humble and son like carriage that thou dost to this day with thy heart Remember the love of thy parents. Thus much for obedience to parents in general. Again, if thy parents be godly and thou wicked as thou art, if thou hast not a second work or birth from God upon thee, then thou art to consider that thou art more strongly engaged to respect and honor thy parents, not now only as a father in the flesh, but as godly parents. Thy father and mother are now made of God thy teachers and instructors in the way of righteousness. Wherefore, to allude to that of Solomon, my son, keep thy father's commandment and forsake not the law of thy mother. Bind them continually upon thine heart and tie them about thy neck. Now to provoke thee hereto, consider one that this hath been the practice always of those that are and have been obedient children. Yea, of Christ himself to Joseph and Mary, though he himself was God-blessed forever. 2. Thou hast also the severe judgments of God upon those that have been disobedient, to awe thee as one. Ishmael, for but mocking at one good carriage of his father and mother, was both thrust out of his father's inheritance and the kingdom of heaven, and that with God's approbation. 2. Hophni and Phinehas, for refusing the good counsel of their father, provoked the great God to be their enemy. They hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. Because the Lord would slay them. 3. Absalom was hanged, as I may say, by God himself for rebelling against his father. Besides, little dost thou know how heart, aching a consideration it is to thy parents, when they do but suppose thou mayest be damned. How many prayers, sighs, and tears are there wrung from their hearts upon this account? Every miscarriage of thine goeth to their heart, for fear God should take an occasion thereat to shut thee up in hardness forever. How did Abraham groan for Ishmael? Oh, saith he to God, that Ishmael might live before thee. How was Isaac and Rebekah grieved for the miscarriage of Esau?
And how bitterly did David mourn for his son who died in his wickedness? Lastly, and can any imagine, but that all these carriages of thy godly parents will be to thee the increase of thy torments in hell, if thou die in thy sins notwithstanding? Again, if thy parents and thou also be godly, how happy a thing is this! How shouldest thou rejoice that the same faith should dwell both in thy parents and thee? Thy conversion, possibly, is the fruits of thy parents' groans and prayers for thy soul. And they cannot choose but rejoice. Do thou rejoice with them. It is true in the salvation of a natural son, which is mentioned in the parable. This my son was dead and is alive again and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Let therefore the consideration of this, that thy parents have grace, as well as thee, engage thy heart so much the more to honor, reverence, and obey them. Thou art better able now to consider the pains and care that thy friends have been at, both for thy body and soul, Wherefore strive to requite them. Thou hast strength to answer in some measure the command. Wherefore do not neglect it. It is a double sin in a gracious son not to remember the commandment. Yea, the first commandment with promise. Take heed of giving thy sweet parents one snappish word or one unseemly carriage. Love them because they are thy parents, because they are godly, and because thou must be in glory with them. Again, if thou be godly, and thy parents wicked, as often it sadly falls out, then one, let thy bowels yearn towards them. It is thy parents that are going to hell. Two, as I said before to the wife, touching her unbelieving husband, so now I say to thee, take heed of a parroting tongue. Speak to them wisely, meekly, and humbly. Do for them faithfully without repining, and bear with all childlike modesty their reproaches, their railing, and evil speaking. Watch fit opportunities to lay their condition before them. Oh, how happy a thing would it be if God should use a child to beget his father to the faith. Then indeed might the father say, with the fruit of my own bowels, hath God converted my soul. The Lord, if it be his will, convert our poor parents, that they with us may be the children of God. Concerning servants. Servants also, they have a work to do for God in their place and station among men. The apostles assert masters under a threefold consideration. First, the believing master. Second, the unbelieving master. Third, the froward master. For all which servants are furnished with counsel and advice in the word for the demeaning of themselves under each of them, but before I speak in particular to any of these, I will in general show you the duty of servants. 1. Thou art to look upon thyself as thou art, that is, as a servant, not a child, nor a wife. Thou art inferior to these. Wherefore count thyself under them, and be content with that station. For three things the earth is disquieted, 
and for four which it cannot bear. One is a servant when he reigneth. It is out of thy place, either to talk or do as one that reigneth. Two, consider that thou being a servant, what is under thy hand is not thy own but thy master's. Now, because it is not thy own, thou oughtest not to dispose of it. But because it is thy master's, thou oughtest to be faithful. Thus it was with Joseph. But if thou do otherwise, know that thou shalt receive of God for the wrong that thou dost. And there is with God no respect of persons. Wherefore, three, touching thy work and employment, thou art to do it as unto the Lord, and not for man. And indeed, then servants do their business as becomes them, when they do all in obedience to the Lord, as knowing that the place in which they now are, it is the place where Christ hath put them, and in which he expecteth they should be faithful. Servants, saith Paul, be obedient to them that are your masters, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service, as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Observe a little the word of God to servants. One, servants must be obedient. Yet two, not with that obedience that will serve man only. Servants must have their eye on the Lord in the work they do for their masters. Three, that their work in this service is the will and ordinance of God. From which I conclude that thy work in thy place and station, as thou art a servant, is as really God's ordinance and as acceptable to him in its kind as his preaching or any other work for God and that thou art as sure to receive a reward for thy labor as he that hangs or is burnt for the gospel. Wherefore, saith the apostle to servants, whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord, and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance. For ye serve the Lord Christ. And now touching the three sorts of masters mentioned before, First, for the believing master, saith Paul, they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, and partakers with the servants of the heavenly benefit. Servants, if they have not a care of their hearts, will be so much in the consideration of the relation that is betwixt their masters, and they, as brethren, that they will forget the relation that is between them as masters and servants. Now, though they ought to remember the one, yet let them take heed of forgetting the other. Know thy place as a servant, while thou considerest that thy master and thee are brethren, and do thy work for him faithfully, humbly, and with meekness, because he is a master faithful and beloved and partaker of the heavenly benefit. If any man teach otherwise, saith the apostle Paul, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, 
He is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. Second, for the unbelieving masters, for of them Paul speaks in the first verse of the sixth of Timothy, let as many servants, saith he, as are under the yoke count, their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. Servants living with unbelieving masters are greatly engaged to be both watchful, faithful, and trusty. Engaged, I say, one, from the consideration of the condition of their master, for he being unbelieving will have an evil eye upon thee, and upon thy doings, and so much the more because thou professest as in the case of Saul and David. Two, thou art engaged because of the profession thou makest of the word of God. For by thy profession thou dost lay both God and his word before thy master, and he hath no other wit but to blaspheme them if thou behave thyself unworthily. Wherefore Paul bids Titus exhort servants to be obedient to their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering again, not giving parroting answers, or such as are cross or provoking, not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior in all things. That servant who in an unbeliever's family doth his work before God, as God's ordinance, he shall adorn the doctrine of God, if not save his master by so doing. But if he doth otherwise, he shall both stumble the unbeliever, dishonor God, offend the faithful, and bring guilt upon his own soul. Third, for the froward master, though I distinguish him from the unbeliever, Yet it is not because he may not be such, but because every unbeliever doth not properly go under that name. Now with this froward and peevish fellow, thou art to serve as faithfully for the time thou standest bound, as with the most pleasant and rational master in the world. Servants, saith Peter, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. And if thy peevish master will still be froward, either out of spite to thy religion, or because he is without reason concerning thy labor, thou to the utmost of thy power, laboring faithfully, God then reckoneth thee a sufferer for well-doing. As truly as if thou wert called upon the stage of this world before men for the matters of thy faith, Wherefore, Peter adds this encouragement to servants, to the exhortation he gave them before. This is thankworthy, saith he, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently. This is acceptable with God. 
Wherefore, be comforted concerning thy condition, with considering that God looks upon thee as on Jacob in the family of Laban, and will right all thy wrongs, and recompense thee for thy faithful, wise, and godly behavior before and in the service of thy froward master. Wherefore, be patient, I say, and abound in faithfulness in thy place, and calling till God make a way for thy escape from this place. And when thou mayest be made free, use it rather, duties of neighbors each to other. Having thus in few words showed you what is duty under your several relations, I shall now at last speak in a word or two touching good neighborhood, and then draw towards a conclusion. Touching neighborhood, there are these things to be considered and practiced, if thou wilt be found in the practical part of good neighborhood. First, thou must be of a good and sound conversation in thy own family, place, and station, showing to all the power that the gospel and the things of another world hath in thy heart, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Second, as persons must be of good behavior at home, that will be good neighbors, so they must be full of courtesy and charity to them that have need about them. Right good neighborhood is for men readily to communicate, as of their spirituals, so of their temporalities, as food, raiment, and help to those that have need, to be giving to the poor as thou seest them go by thee, or to inquire after their condition, and according to thy capacity to send unto them. Third, thou must be always humble and meek among them, as also grave and gracious not light and frothy, but by thy words and carriage ministering grace to the hearers. Thus also Job honored God among his neighbors. Fourth, thy wisdom will be rightly to discountenance sin and to reprove thy neighbor for the same, denying thyself in some things, for the preventing an injury to thy neighbor, that thou mayest please him for his edification. Fifth, if thou wouldest be a good neighbor, take heed of thy tongue upon two accounts. One, that thou with it give no offensive language to thy neighbor, to the provoking of him to anger. Bear much, put up wrongs, and say little. It is an honor for a man to cease from strife, but every fool will be meddling. And again he loveth transgression that loveth strife. 2. And as thou shouldest take heed that thou be not the original of contention and anger, so also take heed that thou be not an instrument to beget it between parties, by tale-bearing and a gossiping spirit. He that passeth by and meddleth with strife belonging not to him is like one that taketh a dog by the ears, as coals are to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. I do observe two things, very odious in many professors. The one is a headstrong and stiff-necked spirit that will have its own way, 
and the other is a great deal of tattling and talk about religion, and but a very little, if anything, of those Christian deeds that carry in them the cross of a Christian in the doing thereof, and profit to my neighbor. One, when I say a head, strong and stiff-necked spirit, I mean they are for pleasing themselves and their own fancies in things of no weight, though their so doing be as the very slaughter, knife to the weak conscience of a brother or neighbor. Now this is base. A Christian, in all such things as entrench not the matters of faith and worship, should be full of self, denial, and seek to please others rather than themselves. Give none offense to the Jews, nor to the Greeks, nor to the church of God, not seeking mine own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Two, and the second is as bad, to wit, when professors are great prattlers and talkers and disputers, but do little of anything that bespeaketh love to the poor or self-denial in outward things. Some people think religion is made up of words. A very wide mistake. Words without deeds is but a half-faced religion. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Again, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, which are very fine words. Yet if you give them not those things that are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Sins which interfere with the duties of Christian brotherhood and civil neighborhood. Now then, before I go any farther, I will here take an occasion to touch a little upon those sins that are so rife in many professors in this day. And they are covetousness, pride, and uncleanness. I would speak a word to them in this place, the rather because they are they which spoil both Christian brotherhood and civil neighborhood in too great a measure of covetousness. First for covetousness. One, covetousness. It is all one with desire. He that desires covets, whether the thing he desires be evil or good. Wherefore, that which is called coveting in Exodus 20.17 is called desire in Deuteronomy 5.21. As the apostle also saith, I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. That is, I had not known lust to be a sin, unless the law had forbid it, Wherefore, though lawful desires are good and to be commended, yet covetousness, as commonly understood, is to be fled from and abhorred as of the devil. Two, covetousness or evil desire. It is the first mover and giveth to every sin its call, as I may say, both to move and act. As was said before, the apostle had not known sin, except the law had said, Thou shalt not desire or covet. For where there is no desire to sin, there appears no sin. 3. 
Therefore, covetousness carrieth in it every sin we speak of sins against the second table, even as a serpent carrieth her young ones in her belly. This the scripture affirms, where it saith, Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his man, servant, nor his maid, servant, nor his ass, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Covetousness will meddle with anything. Now there are in my mind at present these eight notes of covetousness, which hinder good works and a Christian conversation among men wherever they are harbored. One, when men to whom God hath given a comfortable livelihood are yet not content therewith. This is against the apostle, where he saith, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. 2. It is covetousness in the cellar that puts him to say of his traffic, It is better than it is, that he may heighten the price of it. And covetousness in the buyer that prompts him to say worse of a thing than he thinks in his conscience it is, and that for an abatement of a reasonable price, this is that which the apostle forbids under the name of defraud, and that which Solomon condemns. 3. It is through covetousness that men think much of that which goeth beside their own mouth, though possibly it goeth to those that have more need than themselves, and also that better deserve it than they. For it argueth covetousness, when men will deprive themselves and those under them of the privileges of the gospel, for more of this world, and is condemned by Christ. Five, it argueth covetousness, when men that have it can go by or hear of the poor, and shut up their bowels and compassions from them. 6. Also when men are convinced it is their duty to communicate to such and such that have need, yet they defer it, and if not quite forget it, yet linger away the time, as being loath to distribute to the necessities of those in want. This is forbidden by the Holy Ghost. Withhold not good from them to whom it is due, when it is in the power of thine hand to do it. Now it is due from thee to the poor, by the commandment of God, if they want, and thou hast it. Say not unto thy neighbor, Go and come again, and tomorrow I will give, when thou hast it by thee. 7. It argueth a greedy mind also, when, after men have cast in their minds what to give, they then from that will be pinching and clipping and taking away. Whereas the Holy Ghost saith, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. 8. And lastly, it argueth a filthy, greedy heart also, when a man, after he hath done any good, then in his heart to repent, and secretly wish that he had not so done, or at least that he had not done so much, 
This is to be wary of well-doing. I speak now of communicating, and carrieth in it two evils. First, it spoileth the work done. And secondly, it, if entertained, spoileth the heart for doing any more so. The vile person shall be no more called liberal, nor the churl said to be bountiful, for the liberal deviseth liberal things, and by liberal things shall he stand. Now then, to dissuade all from this poisonous sin, observe that above all sins in the New Testament, this is called idolatry. And therefore God's people should be so far from being taken with it that they should be much afraid of the naming of it one among another, lest it should, as adulterous thoughts, infect the heart by the talking of it. Quest. But why is covetousness called idolatry? Answer. 1. Because it engageth the very heart of man in it to mind earthly things. It gets our love, which should be set on God, and sets it upon poor, empty creatures. It puts our affections out of heaven, where they should be, and sets them on earth, where they should not be. Thus it changeth the object on which the heart should be set, and setteth it on that on which it should not. It makes a man forsake God, the fountain of living waters, and causeth him to hew to himself cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. For, two, it rejecteth the care, government, and providence of God towards us, and causeth us to make of our care and industry a God, to whom, instead of God, we fly continually, both for the keeping what we have and for getting more. This was Israel's idolatry of old, and the original of all her idolatrous practices. For their mother hath played the harlot, that is, committed idolatry. She that conceived them hath done shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers that gave me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. Three, it disalloweth of God's way of disposing his creatures, and would have them ordered and disposed of otherwise than his heavenly wisdom seemeth meet. And hence ariseth all discontents about God's dealing with us. Covetousness never yet said, It is the Lord, let him do what he pleaseth. But is ever objecting like a God against everything that goeth against it. And it is that which like a God, draweth away the heart and soul from the true God and his Son, Jesus Christ. And he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now then, that which engageth the heart, that rejecteth the providence of God, and that is for ordering and disposing of things contrary to God, and for breaking with God upon these terms is idolatry, and all these do covetousness. The wicked boasteth of his heart's desire, and blesseth the covetous, whom the Lord abhorreth. Now the way to remedy this disease is to learn the lesson which Paul had got by heart, to wit, in whatsoever state you are, therewith to be content of pride. Second I come, in the second place, to speak a word of pride and loftiness of heart and life. 1. Pride 
In general, it is that which causeth a man to think of man and his things above what is written. 2. It hath its seat in the heart among these enormities, fornications, adulteries, lasciviousness, murders, deceit, etc., and showeth itself in these following particulars. 1. When you slight this or that person, though gracious, that is, look over them, and shun them for their poverty in this world, and choose rather to have converse with other to have converse with others that possibly are less gracious because of their greatness in this world. This the Apostle James writes against under the name of partiality. For indeed the fruits of a puffed up heart is to deal in this manner with Christians. Now this branch of pride floweth from ignorance of the vanity of the creature and of the worth of a gracious heart. Wherefore get more of the knowledge of these two, and this sprig will be nipped in the head, and you will learn to condescend to men of low degree. 2. It argues pride of heart, when men will not deny themselves in things that they may for the good and profit of their neighbors. And it argueth now that pride has got so much up into self-love and self-pleasing, that they little care who they grieve or offend, so they may have their way. 3. It argueth pride of heart, when sober reproofs for sin and unbeseeming carriages will not down with thee, but that rather thou snuffest and givest way to thy spirit to be peevish, to be peevish, and to retain prejudice against those that thus reprove thee. saith the prophet, Hear ye, and give ear, and give ear. Be not proud, for the Lord hath spoken. That is, hear the reproofs of God for your sins, and break them off by repentance. But if you will not hear it, my soul shall weep in secret for your pride, etc. So also in Hosea they will not frame their doings to turn unto their God. For the spirit of whoredoms is in the midst of them, and they have not known the Lord. And the pride of Israel doth testify to his face, etc. This argueth great senselessness of God, and a heart greatly out of frame. <laughs> For it argueth pride also, when a reproof or admonition will not down as well from the poorest saint, as from the greatest doctor. And it argueth a glory in men, and that they would, that their faith should stand in their wisdom, and not in the power of God, that is, of naked truth. 5. It argueth pride of heart, when a man that hath this or that in his heart to do, in reference to God, but yet will slight a sober asking counsel and direction of God in this matter. The wicked through the pride of his countenance will not seek after God, saith David. Uh, 6. It argueth pride of heart when persons are tickled with thoughts of their own praise that secretly lust after it, that think of themselves and others above what is written. 
which those do who do not acknowledge that man in his best estate is altogether vanity, but such kind of people have forgot the exhortation, be not high-minded, but fear, and also that there is a knowledge that puffeth up and edifieth neither themselves nor others. Wherefore, to such the apostle saith, be not desirous of vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Pride also there is in outward carriage, behavior, and gesture, which is odious for Christians to be tainted with. And this pride is discovered by mincing words, a made carriage, and in affecting the toys and baubles that Satan and every light-headed fool bringeth into the world, ringeth into the world. As God speaketh of the daughters of Zion, they walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes, mincing as they go and making a tinkling with their feet, a very unhandsome carriage for a people that profess godliness and that used to come before God to confess their sins and to bemoan themselves for what they have done. How can a sense of thy own baseness of the vileness of thy heart and of the holiness of God, stand with such a carriage. Dost thou see the vileness of thy heart, the fruit of sin? And art thou afflicted with that disagreement that is between God and thy heart, that layest the reins on the neck of thy lusts and lettest them run whither they will? Be not deceived, pride ariseth from ignorance of these things. A sense of my vileness, of what I have deserved, and of what continually in my heart opposeth God, cannot stand with a foolish light and wanton carriage. Thou wilt then see there is other things to mind than to imitate the butterfly. Alas, all these kind of things are but a painting the devil, and a setting a carnal gloss upon a castle of his. Thou art but making gay the spider. Is thy heart ever the sounder for thy fine gait, thy mincing words, and thy lofty looks? Nay, doth not this argue that thy heart is a rotten, cankered, and besotted heart? Oh, that God would but let thee see a little of thy own inside, as thou hast others to behold thy outside. Thou painted sepulchre, thou whited wall. Will these things be found virtues in the day of God? Or is this the way that thou takest to mortify sin? And high look and a proud heart, the plowing of the wicked is sin. Pride is the ringleader of the seven abominations that the wise man nameth. And is that above all that causeth to fall into the condemnation of the devil?